Hello and welcome to the Fermat's Last Theaters podcast project. My name is David Simmons, and it gives me great pleasure to be in conversation today with Melvin Hinton, who is first going to give us a reading from James Baldwin. This uh, article that I came across is from a book called The Cross of Redemption, Uncollected Writings of James Baldwin, that is, and it's edited and has an introduction by Randall Keenan. The essay is called Why I Stopped Hating Shakespeare. Every writer in in the English language, I should imagine, has at some point hated Shakespeare, has turned away from that monstrous achievement with a kind of sick envy. In my most anti-English days, I condemned him as a chauvinist, this England indeed, and because I felt it so bitterly anomalous that a black man should be forced to deal with the English language at all, should be forced to assault the English language in order to be able to speak, I condemned him as one of the authors and architects of my oppression. Again, in the way that some Jews bitterly and mistakenly resent Shylock, I was dubious about Othello. What did he see in Desdemona? And bitter about Caliban. His great vast gallery of people, whose reality was as contradictory as it was unanswerable, unspeakably oppressed me. I was resenting, of course, the assault on my simplicity, and in another way, I was a victim of that loveless education which causes so many schoolboys to detest Shakespeare. But I feared him too, feared him because, in his hands, the English language became the mightiest of instruments. No one would ever write that way again. No one would ever be able to match, much less surpass him. Well, I was young and missed the point entirely, was unable to go behind the words and, as it were, the diction, to what the poet was saying. I still remember my shock when I finally heard these lines from the murder scene in Julius Caesar. The assassins are washing their hands in Caesar's blood. Cassius says, Stoop then and wash. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown? What I suddenly heard for the first time was manifold. It was the voice of lonely, dedicated, deluded Cassius, whose life had never been real for me before. I suddenly seemed to know what this moment meant to him. But beneath and beyond that voice, I also heard a note yet more rigorous and impersonal and contemporary. That lofty scene, in all its blood and necessary folly, its blind and necessary pain, was thrown into a perspective which has never left my mind. Just so, indeed, is the heedless state overthrown by men who, in order to overthrow it, have had to achieve a desperate single-mindedness. And this single-mindedness, which we think of, why, as ennobling, also operates, and much more surely, to distort and diminish a man, to distort and diminish us all, even, or perhaps especially, those whose needs and whose energy made the overthrow of the state inevitable, necessary, and just. And the terrible thing about this play, for me, it is not necessarily my favorite play, whatever that means, but it is the play which I first, so to speak, discovered, is the tension it relentlessly sustains between individual ambition, 
self-conscious, deluded, idealistic, or corrupt, and the blind, mindless passion which drives the individual no less than it drives the mob. I am Sinna, the poet. I am not Sinna, the conspirator. That cry rings in my ears, and the mob's response, tear him for his bad verses. And yet, though one howled with Sinna and felt his terrible rise at the hands of his countrymen to death, it was impossible to hate the mob, or worse than impossible, useless. For here we were, at once howling and being torn to pieces, the only receptacles of evil and the only receptacles of nobility to be found in all the universe. But the play does not even suggest that we have the perception to know evil from good, or that such a distinction can ever be clear. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. Once one has begun to suspect this much about the world, once one has begun to suspect, that is, that one is not and never will be innocent, for the reason that no one is, some of the self-protective veils between oneself and reality begin to fall away. It is probably of some significance, though we cannot pursue it here, that my first real apprehension of Shakespeare came when I was living in France and thinking and speaking in French. The necessity of mastering a foreign language forced me into a new relationship to my own. It was also in France, therefore, that I began to read the Bible again. My quarrel with the English language has been that the language reflected none of my experience. But now I began to see the matter in quite another way. If the language was not my own, it might be the fault of the language. But it might also be my fault. Perhaps the language was not my own because I had never attempted to use it, had only learned to imitate it. If this were so, then it might be made to bear the burden of my experience if I could find the stamina to challenge it, and me, to such a test. In support of this possibility, I had two mighty witnesses, my black ancestors who evolved the sorrow songs, the blues, and jazz, and created an entirely new idiom in an overwhelmingly hostile place, and Shakespeare, who was the last body writer in the English language. What I began to see, especially since, as I say, I was living and speaking in French, is that it is experience which shapes a language, and it is language which controls an experience. The structure of the French language told me something of the French experience, and also something of the French expectations, which were certainly not the American expectations, since the French daily and hourly said things which the Americans could not say at all, not even in French. Similarly, the language with which I had grown up and had certainly not been the king's English, an immense experience had forged this language. It had been, and remains, one of the tools of a people's survival, and it revealed expectations which no white American could easily entertain. The authority of this language was in its candor, its irony, its density, and its beat. This was the authority of the language which produced me and it was also the authority of Shakespeare. Again, I was listening very hard to jazz and hoping one day to translate it into language, and Shakespeare's botanist became very important to me, since botanists 
was one of the elements of jazz and revealed a tremendous loving and realistic respect for the body and that ineffable force which the body contains, which Americans have mostly lost, which I had experienced only among Negroes, and of which I had then been taught to be ashamed. My relationship then to the language of Shakespeare revealed itself as nothing less than my relationship to myself and my past. Under this light, this revelation, both myself and my past began slowly to open, perhaps the way a flower opens at morning, but more probably the way an atrophied muscle begins to function, or frozen fingers to thaw. The greatest poet in the English language found his poetry where poetry is found, in the lives of the people. He could have done this only through love, by knowing, which is not the same thing as understanding, that whatever was happening to anyone was happening to him. It is said that his time was easier than ours, but I doubt it. No time can be easy if one is living through it. I think it is simply that he walked his streets and saw them, and tried not to lie about what he saw. His public streets and his private streets, which are always so mysteriously and inexorably connected, but he trusted that connection. And though I and many of us have bitterly bewailed, and will again, the lot of an American writer, to be part of a people who have ears to hear and hear not, who have eyes to see and see not, I'm sure that Shakespeare did the same. Only he saw, as I think we must, that the people who produce the poet are not responsible to him. He is responsible to them. That is why he is called a poet, and his responsibility, which is also his joy and his strength and his life, is to defeat all labels and complicate all battles by insisting on the human riddle to bear witness, as long as breath is in him, to that mighty, unnameable, transfiguring force which lives in the soul of man, and to aspire to do his work so well that when the breath has left him, the people, all people, who search in the rubble for a sign or a witness will be able to find him there. That was Why I Stopped Hating Shakespeare by James Baldwin. Thank you very, very much, Melvin. Uh, uh, before we started, we were, we were talking about the fact that you had met Baldwin and spoke to him. Yes. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Well, when I was 17, I think I was 17, and I was probably in my second year of college. In fact, either at the end of my second, second year or third year of college, I'm not sure. A friend of mine, an older, slightly older friend, gave me a copy of James Baldwin's uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. In fact, I think he gave it to me much earlier than that, when I was 14. That's right. Because I remember that I identified so much with uh, the main character of Go Tell It on the Mountain, who I think was 14 when the uh, novel opens. And so I was either 14 or 15 at the time. And uh, I remember that I had to I had to put it down several times because I had other things that interrupted uh, that were more pressing. And maybe the third or fourth time I picked it up and I read it straight through. And I loved it, first of all, as I said, because I identified so much with the character, who I suppose was, in a, in a very real sense, James Baldwin. It's all, always been considered an autobiographical novel. 
It was his first published book. And after that, I started reading everything I could find by James Baldwin. I reached a point where I had read everything that he had published. So when I went to, by the time I went to Europe, because I lived in France for two years, and I thought, well, maybe I'll get to meet James Baldwin and just tell him how much uh, his writing meant to me. And uh, uh, one time I was visiting a, fr a friend. I was no longer living in France, but I was living in Spain at the time. And I was visiting a friend in Paris. And uh, we were sitting in the, I think it was a Café Flore, uh, where uh, James Baldwin uh, usually, well, often could be found. And I said, who knows, you know, maybe we'll see James Baldwin in here. And he said, oh, yeah, maybe so. Who knows? And we went in, we sat down, we had our, ordered our coffee and so forth. And uh, a few minutes later, the door opened. Well, the door was always opening, people coming in and going out. And I looked up and I saw this man. And I said to my friend, oh, oh that man there resembles James, James Baldwin. And uh, before I could say the rest of what I was thinking, he said, oh, no, no, that's not James Baldwin. And I said, well, I know it's not James Baldwin, but who knows? It could be his brother. He looks so much like him. And because uh, I knew about his brother, David, you know, from what I from his writings. So I turned back to my friend who was I was facing the window and he was facing the inside of the cafe. And just as I turned to, towards my friend, a hand reached out and shook my friend's hand. And I turned and uh, James Baldwin was si just sitting down at the table behind me and he smiled and I smiled back, but I was so disappointed that I hadn't been able to shake his hand. And my friend, I, I thought, I, I told him later, I said, I said, that's not fair. I said, you don't care anything about James Baldwin. <laughs> and I'm the one that, you know, has read all of his, his, his writings and so forth and so on. So uh, I thought, oh, me. And I, it, 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 was, it, it was a long time before I got over that, if I ever did. And... Um, so many years later, in Madrid, he, uh, James Baldwin came to Madrid, uh, where he did, um, there was a, an event at the, at the American Cultural Center, the very new American Cultural Center, where there was a connection with uh, Toni Morrison, uh, who was in Washington, D.C., but the connection didn't work out too well, so after a while, they cut it off, and it was just James Baldwin with us there in the auditorium. So that was one big thing, the first day. And then the second day... Uh, there was a big event at the university, the main university in Madrid, the Complutense, and um, there were two professors with their students who had they'd been working on James Baldwin, and they, several of them read papers, including the two professors. And one of them begged me to replace him <laughs> on the stand, and I said, "No, there's no way I can do that. You know, you you, you prepared your thing. Go ahead and, and do it." So I was sitting on the, I think I was sitting on the first row, first row or second row, once the um, press conference started, and uh, he came out, James Baldwin came out, he spoke for about an hour with no notes, and then he asked if anybody had any questions. So I looked around, because I didn't want to be the first one, I mean, after all, I mean, this was at the university, the students should get, you know, priority to ask questions, and there were a few questions, and so after one or two questions, and there was silence, I raised my hand and I asked a question. And then I waited for somebody else to ask a question. There were maybe, maybe another question. I raised my hand again after silence. And after a while, there was just a long silence. Nope, there were no more questions. I had a long list of, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 questions. I don't remember how many. It was a whole page. And from top to bottom, it was full of questions. So after a while, he just stopped asking. He just said, well, 
he just said, next, you know, what's the next one <laughs> to me? And I asked all those questions and I wasn't really oblivious. Now I would think, oh, I'm just boring these people. I can't take up this man's time like this, just me and him. And there were television cameras there and everything. But I wasn't, I was concentrating on him, you know, our relationship at that moment. Because I had all these questions I wanted answers to. So he just said, so, uh, what's the next one? And, I, and when he saw that I was reluctant to go on, he encouraged me to keep going. So I kept going until I had asked all my whole list of questions. And I remember one question which, uh, where he paused because he was, I think it, it, he was really not expecting that question. Uh, I asked him why, uh, because he had written at one time that uh, he did write verses, but he didn't think they were very good and he would never, he would never think of publishing them. And then recently his poetry had been published in, in a book. And I thought, huh, I wonder why he decided to publish this. So I asked him and that's when he paused because I'm sure he just was not expecting that particular question. And he said, uh, he said, well, uh, after so many years, he, he really didn't think that they were, uh, up to his standards, but after so many years of uh, his brother and other friends of his uh, insisting that he must publish his poetry, he gave in. So, um, and then the following day, he gave a reading at the um, at the library in the American Cultural Center. Again, the very new, recently inaugurated American Cultural Center. And uh, at the end, I asked him why he hadn't read anything from Giovanni's room. <laughs> and he explained that uh, he had planned to, but the library's copy uh, wasn't available. I don't know if it had been lost or if it had been checked out and they hadn't gotten it back in time, but it wasn't there, and he hadn't brought a copy of his own. So I said, well, I have my copy here. So he said, oh, would you mind if I borrowed it? And uh, I said, no, please do. So I passed it up to him, and he said, if, if, is there anything in particular you'd like, you'd like me to read? And I said, well, I mean, on the first page, there's uh, this passage that starts da 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 and ends at da da da. Could you read part of that? So he read. Uh, he started the very beginning of the novel and then read even past the the, the point that I had suggested. And then uh, and then again, since he knew me from the previous day, <laughs> um, he just said, uh, "Well, is there another passage you'd like me to read?" And I said, "Oh yeah, I'm on page I don't know, probably page two or page three. And he read that. And he said, what's the next one you, you want? And I said, he stopped asking, is there any? He just said, you know, what's the next one? And we went all through the book from the beginning to the end. Of course, not reading the whole book, but long passages. And often he would read uh, more than I asked him to read in a passage. And, uh, and he seemed to be enjoying it. And, uh, and I was enjoying it. And I think the other people were too. And so that was, and then, uh, the, then there were, you know, people taking pictures and so forth. Then the library then we, we stood there, and we, everybody left except us, and we were talking, and then they closed the library, so we went outside and just stood in the door. It was warm. It must have been summertime. And, uh, and we talked there, I would say, at least an hour, maybe longer. Wow. And, uh, and it, I just couldn't, I mean, I could hardly believe that that was r real, that I was actually experiencing this. And the, the thing is, he was so, I knew he had health problems, but I, I didn't think he was you know, deathly sick. And uh, I know he kept chewing on these mints. Um, and we talked, and he, he was uh, very, very calm. As I had always seen him, you know, on television or wherever I'd seen him, he, was, he always seemed very calm. And his language, 
just seemed to flow. And he would just talk and talk in one sentence after another. And then, then you realize there's a whole paragraph he just gave you. And, you know, with hardly any uh, correction or interruption or anything. And I'm thinking this, this man is so intelligent. It's not just that he's a, a, a great writer. He's, I mean, he's a thinker. And, he, he, and I was just amazed. And every time I would make a comment or ask a question, he had a, a whole essay to give me, but it didn't sound like, uh, you know, a boring essay. It sounded just, it sounded so natural right, when he spoke. Articulate. Yes, yes. Right. And, uh, and then at one point he said, well, you know, I, I guess I have to get back to my hotel because he had to get up, I guess, early the next day and go back to Paris. And uh, he said, oh, but I look forward to uh, continuing our conversation when I come. He said, I'm coming back uh, next year. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to continuing our conversation. And I said, oh, so am I. And um, then some months later, I walked into this cafe where I went most days to have my breakfast, my coffee. And the Italian manager of the cafe had the news on. and No, it wasn't the breakfast. It must have been lunch, a late lunch. And uh, he had the television on for the news. And then he came over and handed me the daily newspaper. And I saw that was a somber look on his face. And... Um, and he said, you know, I'm so sorry, or something like that. I mean, I don't, I don't know if he knew that I had actually met James Baldwin, but he knew that uh, I loved his writing and that I held him in very high esteem. And, um, and that was the headline of the Madrid newspapers that day, and it was the breaking news on the, all the newscasts. And, uh, and I wondered at that time if in the United States, outside New York or maybe, you know, the big metropolises, if that would have been headline news. Probably uh, not, mm, sadly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, but at least I treasure those moments that I uh, got to, to talk to him. And here you are, and you have a radio literature program on WORT at 7.30 on Thursday. Yeah, right? yeah. So uh, people should tune into that and get their, their weekly dose of literature. <laughs> yeah. And, and this week particularly because we're in the midst of our pledge drive. And uh, it's really interesting. Somebody, one of my collaborators said to me the other day, she said, I don't understand. Uh, I run into people all the time, and this is also my experience, and told me how much they enjoy listening to the program. But then when the pledge uh, season comes around, they don't call in and make a pledge. And I'm wondering if part of the problem is that we're on for only half an hour, so they don't, and they don't think of a pledge into an individual program so much unless it's one of those musical programs, they have their favorite right. DJ. Right. But uh, I wish I could figure it out. Uh. <laughs> All right, Melvin, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome.